This is Growth Decoded to Go, a podcast from a show that helps you grow your business by figuring out the customer experience, one piece at a time. We do this to share our findings with you, wherever you are. Because this podcast is only the audio portion of the show, there might be some references to visuals. But don't fret, because we've included links to the video version of the show in the podcast description. All right, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Growth Decoded, an internet show designed to help you improve the customer experience one topic at a time. I'm your host, Ernie Santarelli, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Plantasia, the official plant of Growth Decoded, and the best possible representation of growth that we could think of and display on the desk in front of me. Today's episode is a special episode because it's the season finale of season two, which means that by the time this episode ends, we'll have investigated 20 different pieces of the customer experience, which is no small feat. We've got a lot of information for you today, so let's get into it. Again, today's topic is email deliverability factors and engagement tagging. Now, uh, what does all this have to do with the customer experience? A lot, you know, more than you might think. You write your emails to be read, and in order for your emails to be read, they need to wind up in the inboxes of the people that you send them to, your contacts. Now, if they don't make it there, if they get hung up somewhere, then there's literally no chance of them getting read. Now, communicating with your audience is a, is a big part of the customer experience. And email is perhaps the most direct channel of communication that you have access to in mass. It's how you communicate new and helpful information, how you let people know about offers and deals, and how you tell your audience things that they probably want to know. Now, again, it doesn't really matter what the email is or what the email says. It could be the greatest email in the history of the world. But if it doesn't make it into the inbox, then it doesn't matter. Now on this show, we talk a lot about personalization, right? Giving each contact the messages that they require, the messages that they expect. And this is where that engagement tagging piece comes in. So in order to give your contacts a personalized experience, one that corresponds to who they are and their level of engagement and interest, you're gonna need to know their level of engagement and interest. Otherwise, you're just guessing. And that doesn't really work out in your favor. So. You want your emails to land in the inbox for as many of your contacts as possible, as consistently as possible, and you also want the right emails to land in the right in inboxes as consistently as possible. And that's what we're talking about today. So let's start with this first one here, email deliverability factors. First of all, what is email deliverability? Isn't it just when an email lands in the inbox? Like what, what factors are at play here? Are some emails more deliverable than others? Don't you just hit send and then wait a few seconds for the email to travel through cyberspace and then land in your recipient's mailbox? It turns out no, but don't take it from me. Take it from an expert in the field. So let's meet today's featured guest and get some answers. And now I am joined by Hannah Frey, who is a senior deliverability specialist right here at Active Campaign. Very lucky to have her on our team all sorts of uh, expertise and insights in the world of email deliverability. Hannah, it's good to see you. Welcome to Growth Decoded. Hey, it's great to see you as well. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, absolutely. Very excited to have you here um, because you are the perfect person to talk to for this <laughs> episode's topic, which is deliverability factors, email engagement. You know, what is it? How do we make it better? How do we make sure that emails or give ourselves the best chance for our emails to land in the inbox? So to kick things off, what is 
email deliverability? What, what is it? <laughs> Probably the most important question. Um, I, I love talking about deliverability all day, so we, we could probably spend hours and hours on it, but I'm going to try to really just give everyone a, a high level overview and some takeaways. So that'll be my goal for today. Um, but if not, we can always ask questions afterwards. Um, so yeah, deliverability. So before we talk about deliverability, we actually have to backtrack and talk about delivery because those terms are often confused, right? They're, they're not the same thing. Uh, delivery is really just strictly, are we getting that email sent and is it accepted for delivery by the inbox, right? Mm. So that tells us, did that recipient's server accept the email? And if it did and it didn't bounce, awesome, that's a delivery. So that's really baseline. If we're going to take it one step further and we're really going to talk more about like the art and the science of how to get into the inbox, avoid spam and junk, that's deliverability. And that's where it's not so black and white. Was it delivered or not? It's more of what are all the factors that go into deliverability? How can I improve it? And uh, we'll talk more about that here shortly. Okay. Awesome. That is, yes, very important distinction to make. So delivery is almost like the precursor to deliverability. Am I, am I getting that right? Yeah, in a way. And another thing that I think is, is not well known is how much visibility do we as the email service provider have into delivery in and of itself? Hmm. So really what we see uh, is this, it's almost like a handshake is how I like to describe it. So our platform, you know, you, you create the email, you hit send, it initiates and it gets popped over to Gmail, we'll say. And Gmail looks at an email and says, yeah, that person has an address here yeah, the content looks great, you know, all the authentication's correct, everything looks fine, we'll go ahead and we'll take this off your hands, active campaign. And we say, cool, thanks so much. And we kind of, you know, we wash our hands and we, we, you know, go back to work. Well, Gmail then is kind of holding on to that email and they say, okay, but what do I want to do with this email? Do I want to put it in the inbox? Do I want to put it in spam? What does the end recipient want? Have they engaged with this brand before? So those are the things that are going through Gmail's mind. Mm -hmm. And that again is more deliverability. Okay. That's so helpful to just like, I love that thinking about it. Like, yes, we'll take this email and then kind of figuring out where do we, where do we route this thing? So Email delivery tells you that the email didn't bounce, that it actually landed or was accepted by the inbox service provider that your recipient has an inbox with. But deliverability is sort of the science behind that, right? The different processes and factors that go into helping inform the ISP, inbox service provider, that you are trustworthy, that your email should go through. Now, deliverability is like your credit score. It takes a long time to get a high score. It's pretty easy to negatively impact it, and then it takes some work to rectify and rebuild. There are a lot of factors that impact deliverability, and these factors fall into a few different categories. Now, for a better way to think about this, we're gonna turn back to Hannah. So you mentioned a couple of things there. I think you said authentication, and then you had mentioned before, there's a lot of things that go into email deliverability. So what are some of those things? Sure. So I like to break it down. Again, I'm really big into analogies if you haven't picked up yet. So there, that'll be a theme throughout the conversation. Perfect. Uh, but I think it helps us all to really make it less scary of a topic, right? Of relating it to stuff that we know. So uh, when we talk about what goes into deliverability, you can think of it almost like a sports game uh, with two, two factors, the players and the equipment. And it's really important to know about both of those aspects. So let's talk about the players. Uh, there are only three, okay? And it's kind of like this interesting triangle, if you like to visualize it, of uh, this relationship between all three. And the first, of course, uh, the easiest to 
to remember is the contacts, right? The email addresses, they're a part, they're in the game, right? We're sending the emails to them. But then you have the mailbox providers and mailbox providers, uh, an easy way to remember are like the Gmails and the Outlooks of the world, okay? And they have a responsibility, not to active campaign necessarily, but to the contacts. And why is that? They're a business just like everyone else, right? Mm. That contact, they can sign up for an email address with whoever. They can go to Outlook, they can go to Yahoo, but they chose to go to Gmail. Yes, I know a lot of people have more than one email address, but we'll simplify it here, okay? So it's like a business transaction and their loyalty is to the contact. You know, the contact, the email address, they're the ones saying, here's what I like to get. Here's what I want in my inbox. Here's what I don't like to get. I didn't sign up for this. And it's Gmail's responsibility to say, I got you. I'm going to put it where you want it to go. And mm. I'm going to protect, you know, our, our customers from phishing and spam attempts. So that's that relationship. And then enters, okay, active campaign or the email service provider. We're really this liaison. So we're facilitating the sends to the contacts, um, you know, at the mailbox providers. So really our responsibility is twofold. We want to ensure that the business who's using active campaign is sending content to people who are opted in that want to receive that. And we're also trying to make sure we make Gmail happy, like, hey, we see you. We know what the rules are. Uh, you know, so we're trying to only allow people to use our platform that are doing it in, in the correct way. So it's really this this tug and pull of trying to make everybody happy, following the rules. And there is a way to make everyone happy, though. So that's the important takeaway is if we're all in, in, in sync and in unison and following good best practices and we're properly opted in, then everyone can win, which is why I like this game. Right. Well, yeah, that's that's very nice uh, to know that there is ways to make it all, <laughs> you know, everybody can win here. All right. I'm loving the analogies here so far. Y you've got players, you've got equipment. Now, if we're focusing on the players, we've got you, the sender. We've got your contacts, your email list. We've got the email service provider. Maybe it's Active Campaign. Maybe it's uh, another tool. And then you've got the inbox service provider, the ISP. Now, what Hannah said there is super important. The ISPs have a responsibility to provide the best possible service and experience to their users. Now, in this case, their users are your email list, the contacts that you're sending to. So if you think about them as customers of the ISP, ISPs like Gmail, like Yahoo and Outlook, they want to provide the best possible customer experience that they can to ensure that their customers stay with them and don't leave to some other ISP. It makes a lot of sense. Each ISP has their own way of doing this, right? Just like every business has their own way of providing a customer experience. They're not going to vary too widely, but they are going to vary a little bit. The way that they monitor their inbox usage, uh, the machine learning mechanisms of them, seeing what types of emails the users open, how often, for how long, which ones go unread? Which ones get deleted? Which ones get responded to? This is all important for the ISP to learn the tendencies and interests of their customers. What do they do with that information? Well, the information helps to inform them of how to curate the inbox and also how to view emails from particular senders. Remember, this is like a credit score and the sending reputation and overall deliverability of a sender, you, is a long game. But what does this mean for you? Well, first, and maybe most importantly, it means that you should send segmented, relevant emails that your email contacts are expecting and that they're interested in. Emails that are helpful. Emails that have a purpose, that solve a problem, and aren't just uh, an electronic message for the sake of sending a message. But what are some other email deliverability factors? 
what are some things that you can do? So you said, you know, Gmail or Yahoo or whoever gets this email, they look at it, they try to decide what to do with it. Are there things that you can do that, you know, will influence that decision for them to take the email and, and put it in the primary inbox? What, what kind of things go into that? Yeah. So that kind of leads into the equipment, right? Of, of my analogy here of the game. So we've got okay. the players and then the equipment. And uh, again, it would take hours to go through all the different types of equipment that may you know, play a part in this game. Um, but I will just name a few. So I, I quickly jotted down, I think almost 30, okay, pieces of equipment. I know. Wow. And I don't want to overwhelm everyone. And so uh, we are going to talk about the most important, you know, next, uh, hopefully. But for now, you know, if we're talking about um, some of the equipment, types, abuse rates, bounce rates, unsubscribes, warming up, bounce codes, authentication. I'm just giving you a small taste of this huge list, right? Um, but those things are what influences Gmail and Outlook to treat your email the way that you want it to be treated, which is hopefully the inbox. So there are things that you can do as the business. Okay, I've got all my ducks in a row. You know, I'm sending to people who have opted in. I have proper authentication. I'm really considering engagement and engagement management strategies. And then we kind of leave it, we have to lay it on the table. Um, I'm a mother. So a really fun thing about um, with kids and they start eating is, is this uh, concept of you provide the food and they decide what to eat, right? So it's really similar with email. You set it up, you provide the content and the email to the best of your ability. And ultimately the end recipient decides, do I want to read that or open it? So that's kind of that, another analogy. I think we're up to three. We're, we're going to be on a roll here. <laughs> Might have a, a counter, analogy counter, but they're all, they're all great because they're so universally, you know, understandable. And it just like helps to conceptualize, you know, what we're talking about. Because this is sort of a thing deliverability is one of those words that's kind of like, I kind of get what it is, but I don't really know what it is. And it can be sort of intimidating and scary, but you're it's, it's very helpful so far. Okay. Lots to unpack there. Hannah said she jotted down 30 different factors for deliverability. And we've already covered a few here. So we've got, you know, spam complaints, bounce rates, unsubscribes, spam traps. We could run through the whole list of factors, but that wouldn't necessarily be the best use of our time together. If you'd like to up your email-related vocabulary, you can take a look at the glossary of deliverability terminology in the Active Campaign Help Center. But to make the most of our time together, let's look at the most important factors. First things first, opt-in. If you're sending marketing emails, if you're using an email marketing tool, it's imperative that you only send to contacts who want to hear from you. Email blasting a ton of people who haven't given their consent to receive emails from you, it's not only rude, unsolicited, and a surefire way to land on an email block list and even get kicked off your email marketing platform, it's also illegal. So don't, don't do it. The second thing that Hannah mentioned was authentication. Now actually, she's mentioned that a few times. What is that? Okay, so you had mentioned getting your ducks in a row and then one word that you've said a couple of times now is authentication. What do you what do you mean by that? What is what is what goes into that? Yeah. So authentication, really, there are three topics within authentication that are the most important to be aware of. And that's DKIM. It's DKIM. Uh, SPF and DMARC. And those are the technical ways that you can properly authenticate your emails. Now, the good thing is when you're utilizing an email service provider like ActiveCampaign, we take care of a lot of that on you know, their behalf. So 
That's the good news. But it's really like that first level of defense. Okay. So we have everything set up. The emails will be accepted. You know, it's definitely like following this, the basic standards. There are ways to build upon it though, and do just a little bit better, um, which just means that that authentication is valued a little bit more with the mailbox providers. Hmm. So it's kind of like, um, Okay, if we're going to use Active Campaign's default authentication, which again, you just you sign up, you have a trial account, you send an email, it's done, you don't have to think about it. That's fine. But if you set up DCAM and SVF for your sending domain, that's that extra step, that extra layer. And all that's doing is saying, you know, I, I know what I'm doing and I'm 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 okay with you seeing the emails coming from my domain. I'm a good sender. I know, you know, my contacts are opted in, like I've got this. And that's just going to be viewed a bit more favorably with Gmail and Outlook. But it's not required. It's it's just a good thing to do if, if you can. Just to give you that extra bit of credibility. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. They're kind of scary acronyms, especially if you haven't heard them before, right? All acronyms is a little alphabet soup kind of coming at you. Are, are they difficult to set up? Are these steps kind of difficult to take? What is What does that look like? They're really not. The, the only thing that you would have to have in order to complete the setup of DKIM and SPF is access to your DNS panel. And that is another, t- another term, I know. Uh, but if you own your domain, a lot of people use like GoDaddy.com, for example. If you log in there, it's going to be really easy to navigate to your DNS panel. We actually generate the necessary records within the Active Campaign UI on their behalf. So it's just a copy and paste. So if we get to the DNS panel, we're able to log in, we know where it's at. That's really the most difficult part, so to speak. Uh, and then at that point, it's just a copy, paste, and enter. So the actual time it takes to maybe implement this at less than five minutes, it's just knowing where to go. Okay. Well, that certainly clears that up. Less than five minutes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It can't be that complicated. You want acronyms? We've got them. DMARC, DKIM, DNS, SPF. I've heard of that last one. It's a measure of how good your sunscreen is, right? Wrong. Now, all of these acronyms, these forms of authentication, think about them like a two-factor authentication on your login for your devices. These act as added layers of support, uh, added layers of evidence that you are who you say you are and that the inbox can be sure that the email that you're sending isn't going to result in a bad experience for their customers, the inbox users, your email contacts. So when you send emails, mailbox providers such as Gmail, Outlook, AOL, Yahoo, they need to identify whether this message is a legitimate email sent from the owner of the domain name or the email address, or if it's a forged email sent by a spammer or a fisher. Now, this includes emails even sent from ESPs like ActiveCampaign. Now, before getting to the heart of the authentication methods here, be sure that you are using a valid, which means existing and established, sending domain that you own, right? It's your domain. It should be older than 30 days with a valid A record. This is your website. It's, it's got to be legit. It's also very important that your domain has an MX record, which stands for Mail Exchanger Record. Now, this record specifies the mail server responsible for accepting email messages on behalf of a domain name. So it's basically like your domain's area code or P.O. box, right? If somebody wants to send an email back to you, there's somewhere for it to go. Okay, let's take a look at these here. We're going to start with DKIM. D-K-I-M stands for Domain Keys Identified Mail. And it's an authentication piece that supports transparency. 
It does so by identifying the sender of a message, you, and provides a signature by way of a key that verifies the sender, again, you, verifies you as legitimate and allows ESPs to send their, or your, to send on your behalf. Now, I can only speak to how easy this is to set up an active campaign because, well, that's who owns the moss wall that I'm sitting in front of. Just kidding. It's a backdrop, showbiz. Anyway, setting this up an active campaign is a breeze, right? We've got plenty of resources that we'll share with you to help out in setting this up, as well as setting up the other forms of authentication. Now, we can't go through all of those right now, and in the interest of time, I'm gonna leave that to the experts who have created those resources. Now, next is SPF, again, not like sunscreen. SPF stands for Sender Policy Framework. Now these records are TXT records on your domain that authorize certain servers to send mail using your domain name. ActiveCampaign automatically configures SPF for all of our customers. This means that you don't need to create an SPF record or modify an existing one to work with ActiveCampaign. And this applies even if you're using a custom domain. And finally, there's DMARC. D-M-A-R-C. That's the Domain Message Authentication Reporting and Conformance. Now, DMARC is a standard that builds on top of SPF and DKIM. It allows the, the domain owner, you, to create a policy that tells mailbox providers like Google, Yahoo, or Microsoft what to do if email fails the SPF and DKIM checks. Now, there are three policy options in DMARC. One, none that indicates that email should be treated normally if DMARC fails. It's the equivalent to not having a DMARC record at all, although you can still take advantage of DMARC's reporting features. The second option, quarantine, indicates that email should be delivered to the spam folder if the DMARC check fails. And then the third would be reject, which means email should be bounced, not delivered to the recipient if the DMARC check fails. So having one of these policies in place ultimately means that you're telling ISPs that you care. You've got SPF and DKIM set up, and you've got faith in them. You've even got a fail-safe policy in place. So think about email authentication this way, right? Let's say you're at a garage sale, and there's an autographed baseball for $50 on the table, and it's signed by none other than Herbert Hoover, 31st President of the United States of America. I'm willing to bet that that is probably not who you thought I was going to say, was it? Anyway, old Herb allegedly signed this baseball. Do you think it's legit? Probably not, right? I mean, it's unlikely. It doesn't make sense on like eight different levels. The price, $50. The object, a baseball. The individual who signed it. The president? Being sold at a garage sale? This is all very bizarre. But what if the homeowner has a picture of the Hooves signing the baseball? What if there's a story that Mr. and Mrs. Hoover used to be really good friends with the homeowner's grandparents? There's even photos of them together. Here's a letter from old Herb that you can look at to compare signatures and see that they really were friends. All of this is evidence that authenticates the signature of the baseball, doesn't it, right? There's proof, they've got the receipts. So DKIM, DMARC, SPF, these are your certificates of authenticity. They make it so the inbox service providers know that the email you're asking them to deliver is an honest to goodness, bona fide, certified, authentic email from you and not from someone else someone who probably writes Herbert Hoover in cursive on a baseball and sells it for $50 to unwitting suburbanites at a garage sale. Whew, all right. You've got an opt-in list. You've got your emails authenticated. The ISP takes your email and then puts it in the inbox, right? 
not always. There's folders in the inbox. There's the spam folder. There's the promotions folder. What's up with these? How do you avoid these? Hannah. Okay, so one question that seems to always come up or something that people are very concerned with when we talk about deliverability, email routing, you know, where these emails go is the spam and promotions tab. Uh, what, can you break that down a little bit? Like what, what are we looking at? What is, what is sort of the breakdown? Why do they exist? And then, I mean, I guess the ultimate question that everybody wants to know is how do I make sure that my emails don't go in those tabs and go into the primary inbox? Yes, that's a really popular question. It's a lot of what we're, you know, answering day in and day out on our team. Uh, so let's talk first about the spam folder, right? We, we've talked a, a little bit at length about the relationship and the responsibility that Gmail and Outlook have to put emails in spam. It is it is expected. But why might that email land in spam? There are, there are a lot of reasons, I know. Uh, but when we're doing troubleshooting, there's really two main things we're looking at. Is the authentication piece just not set up correctly at all? Not mm. saying that it's default, because again, that's, that's valid, that is okay. But is it incorrect? If it's incorrect, that's an easy reason why mail get, you know, might get routed to spam. Secondarily, it's usually content um, or potentially that reputation of the sender isn't great. Maybe mails from that individual have been marked as spam in the past. And therefore, you know, Gmail is just going off of what the historical data, right? Like, okay, well, every time you send, people mark your email as spam. So even though this person's not gotten your mail before, I think I'm going to put it in spam because a lot of people, you know, think that's where it belongs. So that's a bit of that machine learning algorithm that's very complicated and we don't have a ton of insight into, but it is how it works. So uh, again, there's really no way to beat that system either. Gmail is a lot smarter than you and I, okay, uh, for a reason. They're a big brand and it's intentional. So what we can do is just do our best to be proactive with the emails not being marked as spam in the first place. And how do we do that? Do they, are you opted in, right? Did you ask for this content? If not, I'm sorry, but there's no way to get around that. Like that is just, it's gotta happen, right? And then the next piece is, is the content relevant? And that's really where, you know, that email marketing strategy comes into place because maybe they used to like your emails and now they don't. Maybe you're sending too often. Like that's all wrapped up into that content piece and can still cause spam placement issues. So that's important to note. Let's talk a bit about promotions. This is the hill I will die on. Um, and it's not the popular opinion, but promotions is the inbox. I want everyone watching to say it with me. Promotions is a form of inbox. <laughs> if your email is promotional, guess what? It belongs in the promotions tab. It's, it, it's correct. It's the correct placement. And I know a lot, there are a lot of misconceptions around why promotions is bad. And I think that's where this comes from. Uh, one is that not every Gmail user even has promotions tab enabled. So let's start there. So, you know, that, that kind of takes care of about, I mean, the number keeps going up, but I think last it was as much as 30% only has promotions tab enabled that may oh, be wow. higher now. Yeah, it's not, it's not the majority. And, and even if they do, it's enabled because we like our promotions email going into the promotions tab. 
And there's actually a really great article uh, uh, by Kickbox. It's a blog where a ton of you know, industry experts weighed in on this topic. So that's a great resource because again, it's not just us saying it, it's all of these experts saying the same thing. But one of my favorite quotes was uh, from Jess Kaplan. She's a contributor on the article and she works here at Active Campaign on the compliance team. But she shared that it actually offends her, I think is the word she uses, offends her when brands try to move over to the inbox when it's a promotional email and try and she that system because she relies on that content landing where it's supposed to go. So think of it like, you know, like that as well. You, you should do what the recipient wants. And a lot of times that's let the promotions land in promotions. And you're probably going to see high, high engagement when you do that. Yeah, that is, it's a very important point. Thank you for, for kind of clearing up some of those misconceptions, because that is sort of a thing, you know, it is almost looked at as like a secondary or a tier two spam folder or spam tab, right? Okay, so the promotions tab is the inbox, and it's also the correct landing place for emails that are promotional. Hannah mentioned engagement a couple of times there, and email engagement is ultimately the most important factor in your email deliverability. But what is it? Why is it so important? How do you know if it's good or bad? And what are the things that contribute to it? Let's go back to Hannah. So that kind of brings us into this piece of email engagement. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a lot of, of factors at play here in, in deliverability and delivery, but could you kind of define email engagement? What, what is included in that? What does that mean? Yeah, I definitely can. So email engagement is the measure of how subscribers interact with your emails. So I didn't say specifically positive or negative, okay? Email engagement is both positive measures of engagement and negative measures of engagement. Both are important to be aware of and to track best that you can. So I'll give you some examples of, you know, the obvious positive measures of engagement would be opens, of course, clicks, forwarding, uh, favoriting, adding that, you know, from domain to your address book. I mean, I can go on and on. Now, some of those other than the address book, we do get visibility into, right, with reporting, which is great. However, there are so many additional measures of positive engagement that we don't get insight into, but it's important to know that the Gmails and the Outlooks of the world are paying attention to it. Some examples would be, how long are you looking at that email in the inbox? That's mm. something that Gmail looks at. Uh, you know, are you rescuing emails from the spam folder to the inbox saying, no, I wanted that email, positive engagement. We don't get to see that that's happening, but just be aware that there are hundreds of additional factors that are going into that placement algorithm that we talked about. So, okay. Yeah, wow. I know. Like how, do you, how do you improve your email engagement? Are there strategies for that? Like what, what are we looking at there? Absolutely. And I will say that if, if I you know, come across a customer who's having reputation issues, which that's the root cause, the symptoms are spam placement, right? If you have a spam placement issue, we're looking at what's the root cause. And that's generally some reputation issues, authentication issues, et cetera. Um, but for engagement, that is actually the number one thing that you can do to improve performance is to have an engagement management system or strategy. When we are actually looking to repair reputation for a customer, say that they just they made some mistakes, they didn't you know, really set things off on the right foot with Gmail and we've got to fix it. The only way to actually fix it is to implement an engagement management strategy. So that is the number one thing. If, if you're not going to do custom authentication, like you're just going to use our defaults, 
and you know you don't have a ton of time to focus on super personalized content which i hope you do but say it's just like a really busy time for you if you're going to do anything track engagement and use that tracking and that data you're receiving to send timely emails and or send the right type of content to those um, those contacts so yes engagement management is the number one thing and i i'm here to tell you that we know we know that, and I wish I could tell Gmail this, but we know that your engagement cycles are not the same for every customer, right? I know that if you're in real estate, people aren't buying houses every 30 days. I know that. But again, when we're looking at the mailbox providers, all we're doing is passing on the information that we know works. So what when you know when we're looking at suggesting an engagement management cycle per se, 30 days is that time frame that if you're having issues, we have to stop sending to contacts who haven't engaged in 30 days. Maybe you send once a month and you're like, man, that's that's not fair. You know, it's not fair, Hannah. I know, I hear you, but that's what they're kind of looking for. And so that should hopefully encourage you to just think outside the box. If you're only sending once a month, maybe there is a way to send more emails that are relevant. That's really where you should start evaluating, okay, can I fit into this engagement management that mailbox providers are requiring? I mean, borderline, they are requiring that you keep track of this and you only send to engage contacts. That time frame, sure, we can play around with. Then you have to step up the content and the marketing game you know, to meet those needs. And this is everyone's on the same playing field. We're going to go back to the sports analogy. Everyone's in the same game, on the same playing field as you. No one gets a leg up in this. We're all just doing our best to, to make Gmail happy, right? Yeah, at the, at the end of the day, right? If the, because at a certain point, it is, it is up to them, right? Um, and, and you can do everything in your power to make sure that you inform them as best as you can that you are a reputable sender. An engagement management strategy. What does that really mean? Hannah mentioned the 30-day window there. But again, what about infrequent senders? Does this mean that you should stop sending to anyone who hasn't engaged with an email in more than 30 days? Or is it just that if you're not in great standing with the ISPs? But how do you know that? Hannah, I've got questions. So... The 30 day period, right? If you're in, if you're trying to repair engagement, is, is that consistent across all senders or like when we're thinking about engagement tracking or tagging, like what is an appropriate amount of time to let pass? You know, if you're, if your reputation is, you know, in, if you're in good standing, we'll say, is, is there a particular piece of time that you should, you know, then start tagging people as inactive or what does that look like? Yeah. So if, Unless you're in like crisis mode, reputation repair mode, if you're really just maintaining reputation, uh, th- and again, this these cycles are continual, so it's not a one-time thing. This is something you want to set up long-term and always be evaluating, uh, but I would say that 30-day segment is a hyper-engage, so that's like super-engage, hyper-engage, but really when up, up to 120 days, you really can still consider that as like roughly your, you know, your engage segment, um, say 90 to 120, so that's, they're still engaged, like that's still like a solid best guess. But if you're sending every day, that's my caveat. If you're sending every day, I would rather you, instead of a time frame, it's good to have a time frame as a frame of reference. I would rather you think about it as the number of emails that individual has had the opportunity to engage with. Mm. You're sending every day. 
a one month time frame may even be too long, right? Because that's 30 opportunities to engage with you. So that's what I would rather you think of it when you're like, okay, well, these are the suggested time frames. How can I fit this to my business? Think about the number of emails they have the opportunity to engage with, okay? Um, outside of that rough 120 mark, I mean, if we're looking at like six to 12 months and they have not interacted with you and we're not talking about just six emails because, okay, I may not engage every six emails, but I may still want your content, but that's a lot of email you know, engagement opportunity. That's really that, that unengaged. And those are the ones you should be focusing on for Give them a chance to re-engage. Let them know, hey, I'm going to remove you. I haven't heard from you in a while. Um, and then we're going to remove them from that regular send because they're not doing you any favors. And, and here's a little bit of a, a secret that's really not a secret, but they can come back, right? Like, I know it's, I mean, you don't realize it, but if, if they stop getting your emails and they missed it and they want to come back, they will do it. So they know how to get a hold of you. <laughs> they know right. how to get back on the list. So just give them that opportunity. One uh, small thing I want to mention though is with open tracking, I don't want to go into a tangent about the you know the mail privacy policy updates with with iOS 15 and Apple because um, I, I know that that's would require a lot more time. But know that those changes have caused open uh, tracking, you know, and relying on opens for anything to be a little bit iffy. So I would just say as much as you can uh, include clicks. And, and call the actions that we can, you know, be certain of for tracking. So this is relevant to the engagement cycle as well. If we're just strictly relying on opens, you may be getting rid of contacts that just, you know, you're just not able to report on opens. So really think about that as you're building these strategies. Yes, certainly a great call out. Um, and, and it's definitely a, an evolving and changing situation as time goes on there. Okay, let's talk about the mail privacy protection piece of iOS 15, Apple software update real quick. In a previous episode of Growth Decoded, one on email analytics, we heard from three different guests about the importance and implications of the MPP. We also hosted a webinar about the topic a few months back. But here's the deal. Open rates tell you a little about your contacts engagement, but not a lot, right? It's the bare minimum that they can do to engage with your email. They're not necessarily a great metric for email engagement because it's not really an act of engagement. For example, I'm an inbox zero kind of guy, meaning I open every email I get because I subconsciously decided long ago that any amount of unread emails and any indication that I have a notification on any of my de devices is, is too many. So I open them all. Do I read them all? No chance. Which means they're not open for very long. Do I click on them? Rarely. Only the ones I'm really interested in. And that's the point. A lone email open is about as much email engagement as the, hey, how are you? When someone gets on an elevator is to human engagement. It's more than zero, but only just. Measuring clicks, forwards, email replies, as well as site tracking data, transactional history, purchase history, event registration, and attendance, other forms of contact action are much better than relying on unreliable vanity metrics like email opens alone. So combine all of those metrics together where you can in your engagement management strategy. Okay, now to the cycles and timelines that Hannah had talked about. Let's, let's take a look at this. So we've got a few distinctions to make here. And as always, this comes with the caveat, right? How often are you sending? Because frequency of email sends is gonna make a big difference here in terms of engagement. Sending more to your more engaged contacts is a smart move, 
because marketing is a conversation. And even though your contacts might not be verbally or textually saying something back to you, their actions and inactions are cues. So listen for those and respond appropriately. Now, if we move into this middle section, this three to six month range for unengaged contacts, that means it's probably a good time to send a re-engagement email campaign and think about cutting the ties with them. Now, a re-engagement email campaign is an email that you send as, as sort of a last chance. It's like, a, hey, we haven't really been in your life for a while now, so what do you think? Should we leave you alone for a while? Are you still interested? You, you were interested once. Maybe the timing was wrong then. Is the time better now? Like, what are we, what are we thinking here? L let me know. And then they let you know. And as Hannah said, they're, they're not gone forever, right? They found you once. They could find you again. Our good friend Shiv on the Active Campaign Education team hosted a webinar recently about re-engagement emails. And it's certainly worth checking out if you're interested in learning more. Now, anything longer than this three to six month period of inactivity, it's, it's a little risky, right? That email address might be abandoned. It might even have been reclaimed as a spam trap that would flag the ISP that you could be spamming, which isn't good because you're not. So be diligent about your engagement management strategy, about your list segmentation and your tagging, and about sending relevant, valuable content to your email list, right? This helps a ton. It keeps your engagement rates high. Your email is clean and your deliverability as well as your sending reputation with the ISPs strong. But this all begs the question, how do you know how long it's been since they engaged? How do you actually track this stuff? How do you tag contacts based on engagement. How do you know? Let's go back to Hannah. Okay. If we're thinking about email engagement, we're thinking about tracking engagement. Um, someone who's watching this might say, how do you, how do you track that? How do you do that? How do you actually tag contacts or how do you, how do you find out who's engaging and who's not? Yeah, it's a great question. So within Active Campaigns UI, that's what I love about our platform is we have the ability to, we have all these unique triggers and automations that you can set up. We do have recipes available within your account that you can just open up, add in you know, your specific information and they're out of the box, ready to go. Uh, I believe they're the uh, engagement tracking parts one and two. So those I would highly recommend to, to at least with a starting point, and then you can build off of that. There are like preset timeframes, which again, we've talked about, you may want to adjust those. And they also, uh, at, at least last I checked, did not include also the re-engagement email like recommendation. So however you're going to attempt to re-engage those unengaged contacts. So that's another piece you want to add on. Uh, but yeah, all, all we have to do is, you know, make sure we're tagging contacts, uh, whether, it, whether it's with a tag of engage, unengaged. And I like to also include a date. So the, of course there's a date field available. You know, we have the triggers of visited the site, opened an email, clicked, forwarded, whatever it is that we're able to track for you within the UI, that trigger then updates a date field or adds a tag or both, however you want to do it. And that way, you know exactly when this contact last engaged with you in any you know various way. I also love include, I love including uh, transactional data. If you have it, last purchase, anything that we can then point to well, but they're, they're into us, right? We have a thing. So let's keep, you know, keep track of it. And uh, of course, like I said, open up those, those recipes uh, for the part one and part two engagement tagging and start there. Yes. Uh, those, the part one and part two, we will, we were about to cover those pretty extensively in this, <laughs> in this episode. Yes, we are. You already know active campaign has some automation frameworks, or as we like to call them recipes 
ready for you to import into your account and use. So let's take a look at them here. First up, engagement tagging part one. Now you might be looking at this and scratching your head a little bit. What's going on here? How does this automation start? There's no start trigger. This defies logic. Let me break it down for you. One, you're right. This automation has no start trigger. Instead, you will bulk add all initial contacts after building out the automation. Two, the automation waits for periods of seven days, 21 days, or more between status checks and then assigns tags as a contact becomes less engaged. You can adjust those wait times as you prefer. And finally, the third, the automation ends until a contact engages again. But as always, you can customize. And here are some common ways that you might want to do that. First, you could build a subscribes to list trigger for any new contacts to just automatically add them into this automation, right? You might want some of these tags to trigger other automations that help re-engage your contacts, like that re-engagement email campaign automation or a feedback survey for inactive users. Also, it's worth noting that this is an always-on automation, right? Everyone starts out as engaged. Now, over time, a contact naturally becomes less engaged until they take an action to re-engage. Now, engagement tagging part two continuously checks for a contact to re-engage. And once a contact makes an action to re-engage, they start the process over as an engaged contact. So let's take a look at that one. What's going on here? Now, this automation triggers when a contact performs an action to re-engage, right? This can be things like opening or clicking an email, visiting a web page, subscribing, subscribing to a new list. Maybe you want to add some more actions that would add them into this automation, right? Go wild. What are the things that indicate engagement? Add those. This is the way that you would combine all of these different engagement tracking and management pieces into your engagement management strategy. Now, second, when the automation triggers, the exit other automation step pulls that contact out of part one. And then three, enter other automation, that restarts the contact at the beginning of part one, which re-tags them as engaged and removes any of the disengaged tags. Now, the condition needs to be set for part one engagement tagging automation recipe. So be sure to, to do that when you're setting this up. And then finally, this automation ends. So boom, with these two automations set up and implemented, you'll have automations that are always on, always monitoring your contact lists for engagement actions, and always tagging them with the current level of engagement. Now, here's the thing, though. These automations, they can't tag contacts retroactively, which means you want to set this up ASAP if you haven't already. Having a good sense of who's engaged and who isn't means that you can send more emails to folks who want to hear from you and less emails to those who just might not want to hear from you as much. As we talked about earlier, that re-engagement email campaign, right? Here's an automation that's pre-built and ready to go for you. You can automatically work to re-engage contacts that might be on the verge of going somewhere else or, or falling out of your list. Now, you won't get all of them back. And that's fine. That's, that's okay, really. Because if they're not engaged, you, you don't want to send them emails, right? They could end up marking your email as spam. They're probably not opening those emails or taking actions on them. And sometimes you just need to unsubscribe them. Also, unsubscribes might be a good thing. Let's take a listen to Hannah. To your point as well, you know, if they aren't engaged, you don't really want to be sending to them, right? Because that, that sort of brings down the, the overall average that 
folks like Gmail are looking at, right? Um, exactly. And another thing that a lot of people don't realize is uh, they, they may say, well, who cares, right? So say I'm sending to them and they're not opening, but you know, what harm am I doing? The harm that you're doing is your overall reputation is going down. Mm. When your overall reputation goes down, then your performance is impacted for all sends. So not just those that are unengaged, but those that have been engaged this whole time and every week expect that email to land in the inbox, that email might start migrating over to spam. So you are hurting everyone involved, uh, you know, by not removing those non-engaged contacts. So I like to call that out. So that means unsubscribes are a, a good thing if I'm yeah. applying that? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So they're actually considered a neutral uh, engagement measure, right? So they don't hurt your reputation. Um, I mean, they're considered neutral. I say they're positive because they're doing the work for us, right? So I always consider that to be a good thing. If they're unsubscribing, they're doing us the, the work of, oh, okay, well, I don't have to send them that re-engagement email or, okay, that's fine. No hard feelings. Um, now, what I will say in terms of content strategy and like actual marketing strategy is really spend time considering how you should build your unsubscribe like preference center. I think that's a really overlooked tool when it comes to engagement. And why mm. is that? We may be sending, um, I hate to use specific brands, but I think everyone can relate to how many emails we get from like uh, Bath and Body Works, right? Like they send me emails every day and they don't have a, a preference center. They don't have one, a big brand like them. I know. I really only want to hear from them once a week. But when I sign up for their emails, I tell you what, every day. And I just start, I start to snooze on them a bit. I'm like, y'all, I get it. You got candles, they're on sale. Like, okay, but you know, so that's my point. The point is that even though I'm a huge advocate of that brand and I am a customer, I don't want to hear from them every day. And I would love the opportunity to give that feedback and have that opportunity. So every brand should consider, is that a good idea for me? Should I have op options for how often, you know, do you want to hear from me? Or even if applicable, again, for your business, the sections of your business, right? Like I only want, you know, to hear about this particular product over this one, what have you. So don't yeah. snooze on the unsubscribe centers. We have tons of ways in the platform to customize that to your needs. And I just hope that you'll, you'll take me up on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think everybody can relate and think of probably two, three or four brands that are just in their email inboxes every day. And it's, you know, it just kind of becomes a, a monotonous trudge at some point. But to your point, too, about engagement tagging and, and using, you know, the dates, but also using potentially like tags and tagging people that mm -hmm. that then, you know, lends itself to you could send more frequently to more engaged contacts, right? Like they could, the ones who are opening every email, you know, it might make more sense to send more to them and less frequently to those who aren't sending. So there's just kind of little things um, that, uh, that you can pull out there to right? like all of this would improve the overall email engagement. All of it. Exactly. And it's also something you'll want to continually evaluate and test. Um, you know, I think a great way is if you're, if you're really able to understand the emails that you're sending, what's the content or what's like the overall call to action, whether it's a flash sale versus educational. And if you're really able to distinguish, which you should really only have like one call to action anyway. So this should be fairly easy to do. Um, and then if you're tagging, okay, well, this person generally is only opening our flash sales, right? And the, you know, this group is generally only opening, you know, that education piece. So you can kind of start to build 
you know, backwards almost, well, should we have, you know, ways to subscribe for just one over the other so that we're not saturating, you know, the wrong contacts with the wrong content. So mm. there's lots of ways that you can do it. it. That's why I always say it's not a set it and forget it strategy. Although the engagement tagging automations are set it and forget it for the most part, uh, they run in the background. Uh, you may want to, you know, on like a quarterly basis, evaluate the timeframes, but they, they really do the work for you in the background and they will automatically update your segments. So if you know that, you know, this particular campaign that we send out at the first of the month, we only want to send to our engaged contacts, you're using the engaged tag, it's going to automatically update that segment that you've identified with that tag and you don't have to really do, you know, much on, on the front end there. So we automate what we can, right. But add in the experience where we need to. So take the engagement tagging idea even further, add in some steps to tag contacts based on their preferences. Maybe you could even ask them what kinds of information that they want to hear from you in a form and then use their responses to inform what you do send to them. Remember, we're in the business of creating the best possible customer experience. And the two golden rules of a great customer experience are, one, know your customer, and two, manage your customer's expectations. If you know what they want to hear from you about, if you know what they expect to hear from you about, then you'll always know what to say to them. And you'll know what not to say to them. When you know, I'm sorry, when you say the things that you know they want to hear from you, the things that they expect to hear from you, they'll engage more. And your email deliverability will improve, your sending reputation will improve, and the contacts who are supposed to be your customers will be. Now, failing to get a really strong picture of your customer or not working to keep your list clean and send relevant, targeted, value-driven emails to your list, these are some of the most common mistakes that businesses make when it comes to email marketing and sending overall. Right, as Hannah just said, there are huge brands out there that aren't doing this as well as small brands, but you don't have to be one of them. But what are some other common mistakes here? Well, what are some other you know, common mistakes that you see? I think you've touched on a few of them, right? Like authentication might not be set up properly. Um, you know, get, get these engagement tagging recipes set up and, and don't just send everything to everyone. But what else is kind of uh, something that you see a lot? Yeah, so uh, since I have touched on some others, uh, I'll say for the common mistakes, not understanding the players that we've talked about and the relationship and, and why that's important because it allows you to put yourself in the shoes of the end recipient, the mailbox provider and us. And my mom always said, you know, if, if you're having an issue or there's a relationship that you need to work on or something's happened that you don't understand, try to put yourself in their shoes. And, you know, you get older and you're like, okay, mom, like I get it. But then it really does come back to be hopeful, right? When you're an adult and you're trying to understand how to solve a problem. And I think that's a really great, uh, it always ha has been and always will be a really great piece of advice. It also gives you a better way to interact with us as like the email service provider, because you can come to us and say, hey, I'm having this issue. Like, I know this is how it's supposed to be. And, and I know this may not be widespread, but can you still help me understand? And we would love to do that, you know, for, for anyone that we can, especially coming from a place of understanding and grace, which is hopefully, you know, how everyone chooses to, to interact with anyone. But uh, so I, I love that piece of um, advice and don't make that mistake. Um, also being reactive uh, versus proactive, right? Mm. So reactiveness is is more of like, okay, I've been sending for a while. I never really cleaned up my list or removed non-engaged contacts. And now my open rates are 2% and 
help, you know, and like, yes, yeah, so we will we'll still help you, but you would have had a lot uh, of a, an easier road if you had been more proactive. And a lot of times it just comes from a place of, I didn't know any better and we get it right. Like, that's why we do things like this. We're, we're trying to help educate everyone, uh, but it is so much easier and you will see faster results when you're being proactive and you're just making small tweaks to, you know, a small dip in opens or what have you versus if we're trying to repair years of, you know, improper sending practices, again, usually at just, I didn't know any better. Um, right. so just try, try to be proactive and, and you'll see that works out really well for your email program. Uh, and then lastly, which ties into all of this again, engagement, 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 measure it, track it, use it for sending, but uh, don't be afraid to let go of subscribers. I know I've talked about it a lot. And I, again, we get it. We get that a lot of times a metric of success is your uh, your email file. How many contacts you got? I get it. Um, that's what, you know, a lot of CEOs are like, well, how many, you know, what's our subscriber growth rate year over year? And that's still important to track, but it's not the most important measure of success. And it also definitely does not tie directly to ROI, right? Right. And then also there's usually some sort of like cost in uh, acquisition cost per email address or per contact that's also measured on again, at, at, you know, at the top level. And so it's, it's hard to say, well, we paid or it cost us this much. And you want me to delete those contacts? Like, I know it sounds insane. And, and who would want to follow that advice? But it really, truly, it's, it's a trust. It's like a trust fall with your email service provider. We will catch you. <laughs> It will help you. We promise it will help in the long run. And uh, we recognize that that's still hard to do, but do your best to let go. And I'm not saying you have to delete them. And actually, as you know, at Active Campaigns UI, if they're not on a list, you're not paying for that contact. So keep them, keep them, just put them in a box, not on a list. Don't send to them, but you can keep them. That's fine. You can look at them every once in a while, once a year, whatever you got to do. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> you're not paying for them anyway. So. <laughs> Send relevant content from the jump to contacts that have opted in, right? Set up the engagement tagging automations to monitor your contacts and to make sure that you're not sending to old unengaged contacts. Set up those authentication steps and be diligent about your email list hygiene. Segmentation is your friend. And remember, unsubscribes aren't a bad thing. Well, that concludes our show. And that concludes season two of Growth Decoded. Holy cannoli, Plantasia, we did it. 20 episodes up, 20 episodes down, 20 different aspects of the customer experience that we've investigated together. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for joining us throughout this season. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for joining these investigations with us. I really hope that you learned a thing or two. I know I definitely did. If you're enjoying Growth Decoded, please tell someone about it. We'd really appreciate it. All of our past episodes are available on our homepage, and you can also check out the Growth Decoded To Go podcast on most podcast platforms. I'm Ernie. This is Plantasia. This has been season two of Growth Decoded. We'll be in touch about what's coming up next, but what, I'm sorry, but until then, go forth and automate. Thanks for listening to Growth Decoded To Go. For the latest updates on Growth Decoded and links to the live show, you can sign up to be a part of the Grow Team at activecampaign.com slash events slash growth hyphen decoded.